Let's take a little time to reveal The prehistoric stories that the earth once concealed Mix them all together on this ancient land It's time to spread some paleo jam Hello and welcome to the latest edition of Paleo Jam. I'm your host, Michael Mills, and I'm here with Dr. Natalie Warburton. Hello, Natalie. Hi, Michael. How are you? I'm good. We're going to talk about we're going to talk about lots of things. First of all, um, though, um, before we go any further, and, and you're going to talk about an object in a minute, and I've got one because that's what we do as part of this show. But I'm just going to read out your Twitter bio. Right. Right. So. Um, associate professor, comparative anatomist, zoologist, and pseudo paleontologist. Hmm. We'll talk about all of those at Murdoch Uni in Perth. Um, and then there's this little what's in your freezer. Yes. Interesting. Yes. I Interesting. like freezers, in fact. <laughs> so that went there because I obviously collect dead things. And we'll talk a bit about what I do with dead things. And it's legally. You do this legally. Legally, don't yes. You? And of course, it's very important to understand that it is not the thing to do to run around and collect dead things. There are so lots of permits and things <laughs> that are involved. Things. So it's not like this, this like early 18th century body snatchers movie. No, movie. unfortunately not. I think that would be quite fun. But no, we have to do things by the book. Yep. But I'm really interested in how animal bodies are put together and the best way to work out stuff about that is to take animal bodies apart. And so when I go to places like zoos or wildlife parks or vets, I say, if you've got anything in the freezer that's otherwise going to get thrown out that you would like to donate to the scientific cause. And what's the... <laughs> if it's a place you're going to for the first... Obviously, yeah. if, you're, if, if, if you've got a relationship with the zoo, they're like, oh, we've got a dead thing. Oh, Dr Natalie, we've got a dead... Or whatever. Yes. Dead eyebark, dead badger, horse, pony, whatever. Yes. Um, then they know you. But what what's that first knock at the door? Look, like I think people that work with animals um, have a different sort of perspective on the life and death of things. And, you know, it's not uncommon for people to put a dead thing in a freezer. And so perhaps having me saying I study anatomy of animals. What have you got in your freezer? Isn't actually that weird? It's probably, yeah, it probably, yes. It's weird looking from the outside, yeah. from the general public's point of view. It's probably like, what? But for, yeah, if you're the person in the vet or the zoo, it's like, oh, yeah, of course we have. We've got it. We've got it. We've got this and that. What do, what do you want? Yeah, there's always a freezer. There's always a freezer. And often stuff goes in the freezer and they forget about it until the freezer's full or the freezer loses power and then they end up with a really big mess. So they're often quite happy to make a donation to somebody that's going to get something valuable from it. I reckon you should put that on your Twitter handle. There's always a freezer. There's always a freezer. <laughs> Maybe that's what the title of the episode will be. Excellent. <laughs> well, well, you wear works to be. Okay, so I've got an object. We'll have a look at that in a minute. Right. But first, yes. as you know, we require all our guests to bring an object that is relevant to the theme and the idea that we're talking about. And we're talking about reconstructions and muscles and how that all works and how that links to paleontology and stuff. So yes. what did you bring? Well, because I'm travelling, I travel as large as possible. Of I've bought me and I've bought my hand because I think hands are amazing. But I've bought two. You have two, which is amazing. Two. They're, so, they're mirror images of each other, which is quite fun. 
And they're made up of, well, you've got 14 little bones just in your five fingers. And then you've got long bones that are hidden in the palm of your hand. And then you've got eight little bones at your wrist where those creases are that you can't even see. And they're connected to the two arm, two bones in your lower arm, and that's connected to your elbow. There's a song about that. Isn't I there? know there is. <laughs> but 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 more than that, though, isn't it? And this is this is where your area of study comes in. Um, it's it's the other stuff because yeah. for paleontologists, it's it's the bones that 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 paleontologists get in most cases because soft tissue doesn't fossilize particularly well. Yeah. So when you're talking about a hand, you're also talking about all the other yeah, stuff. Yeah, I'm talking what about light, the... What dwells beneath the skin yes. other than the bones? Absolutely. So between the skin and the bones and around the bones are a whole multitude of different muscles. And those muscles, some of them are really short and they start from one bone within the hand and they go to another bone within the hand, so they're really short. And then some of the more amazing muscles come from all the way up past your elbow and they sit within your forearm and then they come down where these tendons and you know if you can imagine a robotic hand in a movie like Terminator and you can see all of those little pulleys and things moving those digits the tendons that come down from all of these muscle bellies up near your elbow look amazing like they're just amazing when you take the skin off and you see how they're connecting to the bones And then what you can do as a paleontologist when you understand where all those muscles sit and connect is to think about how they are interacting with the bones, what the bone shape tells you about those muscles, and then what that tells you about the behaviour of that animal. And and animals that you've not met, prehistoric animals. And and so you you were in Adelaide um, in September? October, October, I was here just a month ago. For the annual Wells Paleontology Lecture. Yes. And the title of the lecture was Prehistoric Puzzles, Reconstructing Marsupials from the Past. And and so this is this is that thing of of, because you often, you know, paleo artists do some remarkable work. Yes. Um but part of the reconstruction work is what how do you know what muscles to put on the bones. Yeah. And so this is the area in which you work. Absolutely. Because yep. it can be... I always think, um, and I've used... I often show um, students skulls and say, do you know what this is? Do you know what this is? Do you know what this is? And I'll use Australian, usually Australian marsupials. Yeah. The koala skull. Yes. And this... And I know the koala skull is a really interesting example in terms of... If you didn't know that that was a koala and you were a paleontologist in a million years' time and you had to reconstruct it and what it looked like, yeah. would you construct this fluffy teddy with big ears and a button nose? Yeah, oh, the external so, features are so so yeah. variable and related to environment and habitat in different ways to how the skeleton and the muscles are. Yeah, so so your stuff is 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 the the, the stuff layered beneath. Yes. And then it's like something else can look after. But but yeah. because it, you're right, it is it is a you you wouldn't you wouldn't have picked a teddy. No, absolutely not. Koalas got. I mean, skulls are fascinating because what you see on skulls, you know, when we look at faces of animals or each other, we see eyes and noses and mouths and how they move. But 
what actually makes up the shape of skulls and, and heads of animals is more about the jaws and how they process food and the muscles that are enabling those movements of the jaws. And so we can read off the shape of those skulls, how big those jaw moving muscles were. And that gives us a great way of understanding the shape of that head when that animal is alive. Yeah, and so an animal like Thylacoleo yeah. has these great big holes, which are, I think, equivalent to our temples. Yes. And that's where the muscles go, the power yeah. of the jaw. Yep, so if you and put if your... You, yeah, if you put your hands on your fingers, fingers on your temples, Yeah. I move your jaw up and down and yeah. that stuff. It's like, okay, there's a, there's, a, oh yeah, you know where those little holes are. Yeah. Thylacoleo, you, I, I can almost put my arm. Yes. Through the equivalent muscle. Yes. Yeah, that's right. So the, the cheekbones, what we call the zygomatic arches, sit out from the face and the big temporalis muscles come down from our temples, go down behind those cheekbones and attach to the, what we call the coronoid process of the lower jaw. And so the wider those cheekbones sit out from the side of the face, the bigger those jaw-closing temporalis muscles are. And so that gives us you know, an idea of the power that those jaw-closing muscles are able to produce. Yeah, and with Thylacolea, we're looking at one of the, the like pound for pound, like, as a mammal, one of the strongest jaws yeah. that we know of anywhere. Yes. Isn't it? This is, this is, this is a phenomenal animal and how cool would it have been if we could still see them yeah but that's a whole other story and we can interpret that from the bones but it comes from the muscles yeah yeah um as, as you were talking i had this interesting thought i spent some time in akarula a little while ago um always loved going to akarula and i got to hang out with the two steves steve uh, hoare and steve hill both leading geologists and as you walk around Akarula, you know, their ability to read what's there, read the landscape. And as you were talking about your hand and all the things that are underneath it, I'm thinking, do you ever, like, when you look at people, do you, do, how has it changed when, when you look at people and you see, like, and you're like, oh, do you, does it freak Very you out? Very much. It, oh, it doesn't freak me out. I think it's fascinating, but I love... Like you find yourself staring at people. I, I do interpret people. So so what I, I love what we call surface anatomy, which is what you can see of the anatomy below the skin, but from the surface. And so if you think of animals like horses, they've got this beautiful surface anatomy because they're very lean, they don't have big shaggy hair. And so you can see the arrangement of individual muscle bellies around the limbs and things like that. But I do this on people as well, which is a little bit weird. A bit stalky. It is a little bit stalky. <laughs> the one that really gets me, one of the units I teach is um, forensic anatomy and anthropology, and we do a lot of skull sort of interpretation of age and sex and likely ancestry and all of those sorts of things. And the heads of bald men are fascinating to look at because you can see all the bumps and processes and yes. <laughs> right, dear listener, I am not a bald man. Not yet. Um, the, <laughs> yeah, so that's a bit like, I'm just, just picturing like you're sitting in Rundle Mall and you're watching these people in there and you're like, it's all right, I'm just surface scanning. I'm surface just, scanning, yeah. <laughs> surface scanning. It's all right, I'm a scientist. I'm just surface scanning. Do you do that? <laughs> Probably not to that extent, to that but extent. I do notice things as as I walk past or people walk past me. 
and which is interesting because because you know as a, as a writer and performer and director of, of things one of the things in terms of developing character is how people how characters walk and hold themselves and I often and I encourage young performers to go and sit in Rundle Mall and just watch people walk yes. past yes and try and picture the stories of those people as they're walking past so there's there's a there's 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 a really interesting I suspect kind of uh Venn diagram in terms of where those ideas and thoughts kind of absolutely link together yeah for sure um so I'm gonna go back to my notes here yeah I'm wondering if we've I've gone got... well <laughs> off track from where we were gonna go <laughs> that's the nature of this thing no in fact no because I haven't shown my object yet bring it out and there's a reason for my object which I broke in half oh dear I'm gonna bring out one part of it just as well I do jigsaws so which for me is the greatest analogy in paleontology because before we talk about my object because it allows you to to to, to say because because young kids in particular understand jigsaw puzzle you've done jigsaw yeah okay i've done a jigsaw puzzle so imagine if you're doing a jigsaw puzzle that's normally a thousand pieces and you've only got one piece and nobody's told you what the picture is mm. and your job is to work out not just what that thing looks like but but what the whole picture is mm. then imagine if you've got 20 jigsaw puzzles of several pieces from each jigsaw puzzle all mixed in the same box yes. without a picture and you've got a because of course paleontology digs big sites yes don't just have the one animal they have bits and you might have a bit of an animal you know i was at south walker creek uh a few years ago in queensland and there are bits you're finding a bit of an animal up one part of the creek and then a bit lower down it's like that's probably it's the same species is it the same individual well it might have been because as a thing dies and tumbles along yeah spreads out yeah it's that stuff so that's that's what so what have i got here do you reckon well a bit of a skull it's a bit of a skull. Good start. And and the reason I brought this is because it's that thing. You're like, how do you... If this is if this was a fossil, and it's not, it's from a yep. contemporary animal. If this was a fossil, how do you then work out what the rest of the animal is? It's like, well, okay, well, a little bit further down the creek, there's this. Yeah. So, which is a jaw, or part of the bottom jaw with some teeth. Yeah. It actually broke in my car. And so you put it sort of together. So... I'm gonna give it to. I'm gonna give you ten seconds to see if you can work out what it is. Ten seconds. Wow. Okay. Or, or at least, at least give it. Have a think about what it. Okay. Can I talk you through my process? Yes, and in fact, that, and that that's way, the thing. That, that, that way, that's if I don't, the, if I don't get it right, that I, I'm better it's, at it's modeling much process more about than the process. I am getting something yeah, right. Yeah. Okay. So what I'm looking at is a, a a skull, the upper part of a skull, and it's broken in half. So I've got a, a brain case at the back with the start of the cheekbones coming off the sides, and then I've got kind of the front half as well, which is mostly nose. Uh, and I can tell it's nose because of its shape, but also because on the inside of it, we've got these bones called turbinate bones, which support the mucosa inside the nose. And then I can see attached to that nosy part, we've got some teeth running underneath. So uh, I know that I've got the teeth of the upper jaw and I can see where the eye would sit in the, in the orbit and all of those sorts of things. And then so it's not a fish, is it? It's definitely not a fish. It's definitely a mammal because yeah. it's got teeth and the teeth are different shapes in different parts of the mouth. So if it was a reptile, there would be teeth. 
but the teeth would be all very similar shapes throughout the whole length of the jaw. And those things are really important, aren't they? Just, yeah. just, just knowing that. Yeah. So that all of a sudden you've narrowed it down. Absolutely. Yep. Like, okay, of all of the, the, the thousands of species it could have been, we've just narrowed it down. This is a mammal. Yeah. When I tell you the location... Yeah. So let, let, let's imagine you, you found this. So the, so the location, as it happens, is Arcarola. Right. So that narrows it down again, doesn't it? It does. It does. And so we're thinking about what sorts of mammals would be in that area. Uh, we're going to most likely presume for the size of it. So the size of it is what probably 12 to 15 centimetres long. It's about that, This yeah. skull. So, you know, for the size of mammals that are going to be in that area, they're going to be marsupials rather than placentals. And there would be... That is correct. There would be about 10 different features I could list that would tell me that it would that would confirm that it was a marsupial rather than a placental which are probably a bit boring for now um and then i'd look at the teeth and i go okay what sort of teeth are they well there's there's teeth right at the front in sizes and then there's quite a big gap which i would call a diastema and then we've got some cheek teeth molars and premolars that are much closer to the back so having that different the, the that big gap there is often found in herbivores as opposed to carnivores. Correct again. If it was a carnivore, again, it's I know. Thing, we're narrowing it down, are yeah, we? Yeah, so carnivores would expect to have a good long row without a really big gap in there. And then we'd look at the shape of the teeth that we'd also expect to see as well. So for carnivores, we'd expect blade-like, piercing, big canines perhaps, blade-like molars and premolars. Whereas what I can see on this one is I've got kind of squarish molars that did have ridges going across them but they're very very worn so we can tell it's a pretty old animal of the species of marsupial that it was and i'm going with these teeth of it being some kind of wallaby-ish from that area even closer I can, do you want me to give it uh, the scientific name? Is give me the scientific Petragales name. Anthopus. Ah, it's a rock wallaby. Yellow-footed rock wallaby. Beautiful. Yeah. yeah. And, and, but I think what was really important for people listening was that process, wasn't it? And each, each step in the way, in, in, the, in, the, in, the, in it, is, is narrowing it down yeah. in terms of what it might be. But then what happens is this work that you do with the muscles so if this was a fossil you then have your you reconstruct it and and so you did some work in your phd on on moles yes marsupial like moles marsupial moles like yeah. swimming under the sand which yeah. i love the analogy like these underground mammals yes. like because there are other underground mammals around the world and, and the differences between them and the ones here but it's that that reconstruction stuff where you were looking at yeah. current day marsupial mole and a Miocene mole and and were there differences and 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 if there are differences, how big a difference does it need to be to to make a difference in terms of what it might look or behave yeah, like? Yeah, that's a, a of... that's a great question, and I think it's it's never for both of those parts of the question. It's never just one thing. We're looking at a a complex suite of lots of different things that go in to make up how an animal musculoskeletal system works. And so, you know, if you think about, go back to my hand analogy, if you're trying to unscrew the jar lid off a jar of jam, you're using 
muscles to stabilize your shoulder, you've rotated at your elbow, so you've got muscles that do that, you've got muscles in the back of your hand that have spread your fingers out, and then you've got muscles in the front of your hand that are gripping on to, to that lid so you can twist it. So you're using lots of different muscles just to perform a single action. And so when we're reconstructing these animal bodies, we're thinking about how all of the muscles are working together and also how the bones articulate at the joints where they come together the sorts of movements that they can have and so rather than it just being oh it's got a particularly big bump here on the humerus it's the the relationship between the size of that bump at that part of the humerus and the shape of the joint surfaces at both ends of the humerus and how that would interact with muscles that were coming from the scapula or the shoulder blade and all of those things. So we're looking at how they all work together. That's very cool. That's, that's very You very were almost cool. speechless there for I a minute. I literally get carried away. Robert Mills is everywhere. No, maybe not. Um, all right, so um, how do you... One of the fascinating slides that you showed... Um, in your talk for the Rod Wells uh, lecture was the after where the 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 multiple what's it called terror ter, ter, oh the polydactylus poly kangaroo kangaroo with seven, seven fingers yes which is fascinating so that's a like it's an aberration but when you find something in the fossil record because we only find the fossils that we can find yes you know people often say to me oh it's the biggest ever dinosaur well. I can tell you the biggest individual that we found. Yes. But if I pick a random elephant, that doesn't tell us how big elephants get. Yes. Especially when elephants have been around for millions of years, that doesn't tell us that. That doesn't, you know, there's a there's a there's an ichthyosaur from the Triassic that may be about twenty five meters. So, I'm betting that the blue whale is not necessarily the biggest thing that's ever lived. Yeah, like, that's just what we have a record that's, that's of just what observations. We have a record of. So it's really important for us to. To remember that, but I'm, I'm just wondering, how, how do you, how do you? It's that old splitters and clumpers thing that yeah. paleos talk about. Yeah. How, like if you'd found this as a fossilized thing, yes. Would it have been? Oh, I found a new species of seven-fingered kangaroo, or I found an aberration. How do we? Yeah, I guess there's what what we know from anatomy, and what I love about anatomy is there. There's a general plan. And so the plan for a mammal or a vertebrate animal is a particular number of bones in different parts of the body. So we know that the basic plan is a five-digit, a five-fingered plan. It's not uncommon for species over time or groups over time to evolve to have less than that number of five, but we know that their ancestors pretty much had five because that is the plan that we recognise, and we can see that through embryonic development as well. Yeah, and, and we see it throughout the fossil record. Throughout the yep. fossil record. So for something to turn up with more digits than we would expect, like more than the typical five, we would definitely take that with a, okay, this seems quite anomalous, and unless we get a whole lot of those and some way of explaining a mechanism for that, it would be really unusual for that to be a... Uh, not an aberration, not something that was just a... Yeah. And we also know that those kind of developmental anomalies are not uncommon. So 
we take into account evidence from lots of different aspects of science to help us make those decisions. Embryonic development, the fossil record, understanding now, you know, we, we, I don't, but people understand how genes work, switching things on and off and, and creating um, the outputs that you get from those genes switching on and off. And so there are many lines of evidence in the same way that when we're looking at a particular fossil, we look for as many different features, as many different points of evidence as we can. Mm, yeah, and, and yeah, it's a such a... Um, I want to I wanna talk a little bit about... Um, so Rod, in his introduction to you, I think referenced Stephen Hawking, who referenced Einstein, talking about the whole going out there and like the, the whole creative and, and, and curious scientist thing and um, and and you talked a bit about that in, yeah. in, in your Wells lecture about you know when opportunities present themselves just running with them and, and it's interesting when when I look back at the things that I've done to get me to the things that I'm doing now you can see a oh look at that career path yeah none of that was forward thought absolutely it was all the stuff that you talked about in your talk where it's like oh this is a cool thing oh what paleontology week started happening in the museum oh yes. I've just met all the paleontologists from around the world while I just happened to have created this character and then and then yeah. and all that sort of stuff so, so what's your advice to, to absolutely yeah look my advice is always to do the thing that comes along that seems interesting to you I think you know People, I'll say people younger than younger than us. Younger than us. People younger than us look at us and go, okay, they they had a preconceived idea of where they were going to go, or they had a plan, or and and I think that's not true for most people. Like unless <laughs> unless you've left school with a with a very clear idea of what it is you're going to and, do. Yeah. Um, you know, the joy of science is that it is exciting and and you don't know the answers and you don't know what the opportunities are going to be. And so, yeah, do the things that are exciting. I did zoology. I studied zoology at uni because uh, my very insightful mum said, oh, well, you like animals. And, and I knew I was going to do science. You know, I knew I loved my science. My very insightful mother said, um, she said, what did it she she She... she Somehow, and I can't remember how it was. She, she was working for a mining uh, wire rope company, and she said, "Oh, you should do mining engineering." So I started a mining engineering degree, mind you. After a month, I'd gone, "No." <laughs> yeah. And I left. Yeah, but which was a good decision. Yeah, zoology, and I got into my first lab where I had to dissect something, and before that, I was panicking. Like I, I couldn't open an anatomy book as a child particularly the pictures of the eyeballs and the muscles of the eyeballs, uh, they completely freaked me out. And I knew I was coming up to this lab and I thought, what the heck am I going, what am I doing? I'm going to be sick, it's going to be awful. And by the end of the lab, I was the last person left in the lab. I had my cane toad spread out across my entire desk. I'd skinned it. I said to my <laughs> teacher, can I keep the skin? And he said, um, I don't know. Uh, you know, I, I'd separated all the things and I just thought... It was the most amazing um, thing to see. Or, you know, animal bodies are amazing. Bodies are amazing that you can see 
Ah, oh, the intricacy of it. What is really fascinating, isn't it, that that that, that came to be the thing yeah. that fascinates you and, and none of us know where that thing comes from. For me, the thing that fascinates me is, is it's the writing of songs and melody and music. I just I worked on a show recently where um, my job was the writing of the songs. You know, it had a director, it had a script writer, there's a cast. Often in shows, I do all of those things, whereas yeah. this, I got to, to just write the songs and I loved it. It helped that I'd done all the things. Yes. But it was coming back to that thing that I love, and that's yeah. that stuff that you're talking. This, this, this. You found this thing, yeah, and it's allowed you to help all of us better understand not just the things that are alive now, but applying that to prehistoric animals. Because yeah, paleontology is cool, and it, it's. And I think again, you talked about this at, at the. At the lecture, you know, it comprises a whole bunch of people doing a whole bunch of things. So you're not a pseudo paleontologist. <laughs> you are an honorary paleontologist. Sometimes you are, or sometimes. But but your work is as is as essential, and as, as as anybody else's in this place, because it helps us look at how the animals get a sense of how they what they look like. Yeah. But also how they behaved and moved and stuff. And then that tells us about where they lived and how they lived and all of those things so yeah everybody brings different skills and and it's that's one of the fabulous things about paleontology yes yes we are almost out of time in fact there we are that is the end thank you so much for joining me that was absolute a... pleasure and um you get to take your uh, objects with you. <laughs> Are you sure? Take them back you can to Perth. Part, you part with the rock wallaby. No? Uh, I take my hands. You can keep your rock wallaby. <laughs> Thank you. It's time to spread some paleo jam.